Hello and welcome to Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keene. This week on the show, we're looking at the dark side of fast fashion. There are some big-name, inexpensive retailers sourcing their garments closer to home in order to get trendy pieces into their shoppers' hands fast. But how is it possible such labor-intensive production is taking place in one of the most expensive economies in the world? I kind of quickly realized that, in fact, basically just a kind of a chunk of this sector which isn't really following the law. There's other manufacturers that will undercut us because they're paying less wages or they're, they're not paying the taxes correctly. And it turned out, actually, that it was a sort of open secret. It's sort of strange to hear people say it in such an open way. We're not in some third-world country far away. You know, we're in Leicester. How can that happen? So I first came across this whole thing in a slightly unusual way, which was that I was just reading a pretty dry document about the nature of the labour market. It was a kind of government report. That's Sarah O'Connor. Sarah's an investigative reporter for the FT in London, and she's been looking into the garment trade in the UK. And there was a chart in it that just had the growth in different types of low-paid jobs over the last few years kind of broken down by sector. And most of them, there hadn't really been a huge amount of growth, which is pretty much what I would have expected. But then there was this bar at the bottom for textile and clothing jobs, which was just going through the roof. It was like 32% growth or something. And I just, when I saw it, I thought that's totally bizarre because my understanding was that all of those jobs had basically been outsourced in the kind of 70s and 80s to places like Bangladesh and China, um, Sri Lanka, places where it's much cheaper to make clothes than here. And then a few weeks later, I was I was actually in the central government meeting a, a contact and just having a kind of very off-record background chat. And I just said to him, look, do you know anything about why on earth there'd be growth in these sorts of jobs? And he said, oh, yeah, well, that's all about fast fashion which is prompting a kind of reshoring thing. And if you're interested in it, then you ought to go to Leicester because that's where a lot of this, a lot of this is happening. Leicester's a city about an hour and a half northwest of London by train. And we're going to get into what's happening in Leicester in a minute. But first, let's talk about what we mean by fast fashion. It's a kind of modern-day supply chain innovation in the clothing industry. Retailers in the U.S. and in the U.K. want to take trendy looks from the runway or from celebrities and replicate them into pieces they can sell quickly and cheaply. Fast fashion has become a really big thing in the U.K. I mean, I suppose it's growing everywhere, but I think the U.K. is a real hub for it. And by that, I mean retailers that have realised that rather than making stuff in Bangladesh or China really far away, and then waiting weeks for it to get shipped over and then putting it onto your website or putting it into your stores. You can actually sell much more stuff and be much more effective if you're really responsive to the kind of trends that are bubbling up. An online upstart called Boohoo is one of the biggest names of these retailers. I found a dress on their website for just $3 US. The Manchester-based company grew out of a family wholesaling business, and its market value has more than doubled to about £2.3 billion since it listed on London's AIM exchange in 2014. There's another one called Misguided, which is also based in Manchester. And both Boohoo and Misguided say they source about half of their products in the UK. So that won't just be in Leicester, but Leicester's definitely a key hub. And actually both of those retailers have set up kind of sourcing and compliance offices in Leicester because so many of their suppliers are there. And then you you also have actually a lot of the high street retailers High street retailers in the UK are similar to the shops you'd find in American malls. 
rather than planning out a season months in advance and then hoping that by the time those clothes arrive in your stores people are still going to think they're trendy you literally respond to what's going on I mean it's very easy if you've got a website you don't actually have to kind of fill hundreds of shops with clothes right you can have made up a very small run of loads of different things and then when you see which ones are selling you can just kind of uh, phone the factory and say right do another 20,000 of that because that one seems to be popular. And to do this you need suppliers within a reasonable distance of your stores or in the case of online retailers your shoppers it can get expensive. It's not a cheap economy in which to do something that's quite labour-intensive. So Sarah went to Leicester to find out how these incredibly cheap pieces were getting produced. Kind of quickly realised that, in fact, part of what's going on there, and it is only part, um, but it's quite a significant part, is that there's a, it's basically just a kind of a chunk of this sector which isn't really following the law um the law is kind of incidental to it and i went to meet this guy called saeed kilji i'm a chairman of uh, textile association of lesser sayer uh, which is actually something that he set up himself last year because he he kind of got fed up of the fact that all of the manufacturers in leicester didn't really have a collective voice leicester is about fast fashion if there's no fast fashion there's no leicester so I had a long chat with him and then we hopped in his car and he drove me around the garment district in Leicester, which is you know, it's in a pretty small area of the city. It's kind of lots of rows of red brick terraced houses and loads and loads of these very old factory buildings. And these are buildings, you know, huge great stone complexes that were built a really long time ago to house what was then Leicester's kind of big industrial companies. So there was a manufacturer called Cora, which, you know, at its peak in the 60s, employed 6,500 people making clothes in Leicester. But now what's happened is that all of those guys went away um, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and people have kind of continued to make clothes in Leicester, but in these tiny, tiny little subunits that are literally inside those old factories. So Saeed kind of pointed out the Temple Buildings, which is one of these old places, and he said there's a 100 different factories in that one building. And each door, you know, it looks like one door, but there's going to be four or five little factories behind each one. What was it like inside the factories? In a way, factory feels like a weird word for them because they are so small that they're basically rooms with a bunch of people sitting at sewing machines. So they'll have like a big pile of bits of fabric to their left and they'll pick one up and kind of run it through and do a seam and then they'll pop it on another pile on their right. Um, and the radio will be playing and there'll be kind of piles of fabric everywhere and, and then there'll be a kind of another area with big ironing boards and kind of steam irons so that people can iron the clothes. And then often if they're going to online retail, then they'll be folded up um, by a group of people. That seemed to be mostly men that would do that job. So they'd stand at these tables and and literally their job is just to fold up the clothes and slot them into kind of polythene bags um, and then put them into boxes. And then at some point a van will sort of take them off somewhere. So with Saeed, he took me to some of the kind of the big buildings that feel pretty dangerous um and some of those you know we couldn't even really get into but even in the stairwells yeah there's a kind of spaghetti of wires sort of dangling down um lots of broken windows you can see through these windows you know kind of stacks of fabric um and I spoke to some people who have been in and out of those places and said you know they found them a little bit frightening and concerning to be in tell us about the people working in these factories who did you meet 
so they're mostly people that live in that area and a lot of them are from the kind of Indian subcontinent. So people from India and Pakistan, lots of them moved to the UK a really long time ago. So there was one worker that I spoke to at length who moved here in 1982. And actually in those early years, uh, the Leicester garment trade was a really good place to work, he found. And his pay was good and he had 29 days of paid holiday. But progressively as conditions got worse, then those guys have kind of got stuck in this sort of nether nether world there are kind of people of that generation and then there's also been an awful lot of new arrivals over the years to Leicester so most recently there have been a flow of people coming from a place called Daman in India which is um, it's a former Portuguese colony which means that those people have access to Portuguese passports and so some of them have the right to come and work and live in the UK and are ending up coming to Leicester and working in the garment trade. And I suppose that kind of makes them more vulnerable to some of these bad working practices because they don't necessarily speak any English when they come. They wouldn't necessarily have had anyone explain to them what the kind of rules and regulations are and what they ought to expect. And, you know, they don't necessarily have many other great options. Part of what's going on in Leicester is that there are a number of factories that basically just don't pay the correct wages, don't pay holiday pay, don't pay sick pay, don't necessarily pay the right amount of tax. And when you talk to the factory owners, they will tell you that this is basically because of the kind of pressure that the retailers are putting them under. So the retailers are really pushing for very low prices. And the factory owners basically say, look, there's only one way that we can do this, and it's by not, not paying the UK minimum wage because it's simply not possible to do it to do it any other way. The UK minimum wage is often also called the national living wage. It's £7.83 an hour. That's about $10.53 US. There are plenty of places where the, the kind of highest wage that you might expect is sort of £5 an hour, and the average might be maybe £4 an hour, £4.50 an hour. I mean, the retailers would say, you know, that's nonsense, and actually they all say that they only source from factories that do comply with the law. But what has seemed to have happened, and there have been a couple of exposés on a British TV programme of this, is that even if you as a retailer put in an order to kind of legal compliant factory that you've audited carefully, sometimes those orders get subcontracted to smaller places, places off the radar, places down the road, which aren't necessarily compliant and that you don't even know about and have never sent your auditors into. And so sometimes undercover reporters have gone in and that, and they've ended up making clothes for a lot of these big name companies. And it turned out actually that it was a sort of open secret. It's sort of strange to hear people say it in such an open way, but that's just the kind of system that seems to have developed over a long period of time in that sort of sector, or at least in parts of that sector. Sarah, how could it be a big open secret in 2018? I guess, especially in light of all of this media attention, how has nothing been done about the situation in Leicester? Yeah, this has been the sort of the question I've been asking everyone as I've gone along, really, is you know, everyone that I meet tells me all of these things and everyone knows it. You know, everyone knows what's been going on. And it's, it's been very hard to understand why nothing really has been done about it. And to be fair, I mean, some some of the retailers, a group of retailers that are members of something called the Ethical Trading Initiative, did try and do something. So they, they kind of put together a new auditing system. They put all of their suppliers through it and they ended up actually kind of retrenching quite a lot from Leicester as a result of that. So they don't really source as much from Leicester as they used to because they're simply too worried about some of the conditions. But in terms of the government, it's, it's much harder to explain. I mean, I guess the agency in the UK that's responsible for enforcing the minimum wage is called um, HMRC. 
And they, I mean, they've had their resources increased recently, but they still, I mean, the number of inspections they do in general means that an average UK business is going to be inspected once every 500 years. So there's just, you know, there aren't really the kind of resources, um, and nor does there really seem to have been the targeting based on intelligence, because, you know, it's not as if it's uh, not clear that there's an issue here. And the, and, and the factories have just not been sort of found out? Sometimes it's quite difficult, I suppose, because these factories, you know, they're not stupid. So there are ways that you can cover your tracks in your books. So you can under record the number of hours that people are doing so that if someone comes and looks at your books, it might look perfectly legitimate, in which case you kind of have to make a lot more effort to track down the truth. And in a kind of situation where resources from the government are limited, I guess maybe that's part of the problem. Sarah says the UK government has appointed a new official to specifically handle labour market enforcement issues. And Sarah, how about the retailers? I know you said that, you know, they may commit to working with one manufacturer who then goes and subcontracts the work to get another factory. But what do the retailers say about their supply chains in the UK? So, I mean, so all of the retailers that I spoke to said, you know, look, we care a lot about our supply chains. We believe in, you know, doing everything by the book. And we think it's really important that everyone's treated well in Leicester and in everywhere else that we source from. And so they they have their own auditing systems. So Boohoo, for example, is not a member of this uh, ethical trading initiative. So it hasn't been taking part in the things that they've been doing. But it says that, you know, it has people on the ground who go in and out of factories unannounced. And to be fair, I even one time I was driving around with Saeed and we bumped into a, a Boohoo auditor in his kind of Boohoo branded car. So yeah, I mean, they say that they're they're doing all of the right things. But clearly, there are plenty of factories in Leicester that are not doing the right thing and they're selling clothes to someone. It really seems like a game of hot potato among the retailers, the factory owners and the government about who is ultimately responsible for this dark side of the way clothing is produced in the UK. Is anyone operating by the book in Leicester? There are people in Leicester that are absolutely trying to do things by the book and kind of take the high road. One that I met several times is a, a guy called Mick Cheemer and his wife. My name's Mick Chima and I'm a general manager at Basic Premier. I manage the day-to-day uh, operation of a sewing manufacturing uh, facility. I think Mick's parents and grandparents were also in the in the garment trade. And they had this idea that actually, you know, retailers kept saying to them, we'd love to source more in the UK for all of the reasons that you and I just discussed, that actually there's a really good economic imperative for sourcing close to home. But these retailers were saying, we're really nervous about, we know what's going on in Leicester and we're really nervous about, you know, sourcing from the wrong factories. So they thought, right, let's set up a really good, really compliant factory. And they knew that they would need to compete with these guys that weren't doing everything right and so to do that they were like well we'll have to be super efficient and productive so they spent a lot of money on these huge great big cutting machines they're like the size of snooker tables they cost a hundred thousand pounds each they bought two all of those things were to sort of try and be as efficient as they possibly could in order to keep their prices down and try desperately to compete with um, people who weren't following the law and they to be honest are just totally disheartened because they're still just really expensive compared to a lot of their competitors. Well, basically, there's not a, a level playing field uh, locally in Leicester. There's other manufacturers that will 
undercutters because they're paying less wages or they're, they're not paying the taxes correctly. Those factories that, you know, are rewarded for their unethical practices by receiving, you know, orders from retailers, uh, which we think is totally unfair. And they're also pretty disappointed, I think, with those retailers who talk a good game. They'll do the talk. They'll say, yeah, you know, we can uh, give you X amount of garments a year. But they'll never put that down on writing or in a form of a contract. There is no commitment from a retailer by saying, look, OK, fair enough, you may not have any physical orders, but we'll give you a commitment that we'll buy, say, several thousand garments a week from you. There is nothing there. Which is the sort of thing that actually you kind of need if you're running a business, is some sense of what's going to be happening in the future. It's not like they don't do business. I mean, I, you know, I walk around their factory several times and they are making things and they're making things for lots of kind of famous high street brands that we've all heard of. But they haven't had as many orders as they hoped and they've ended up deciding to cut their factory in half. And that's because they need to reduce their overheads because they're, they're just not as profitable as they hoped that they would be because they're following the law. We're not in some third world country far away. You know, we're in Leicester. Thousands of people, I'd say, every week are getting paid below the minimum wages. Thousands. And um, how can that happen? Sarah, this isn't a story that's unique to Leicester or to the UK. You know, we've heard of similar practices in Prado in Italy, stories of this in parts of L.A. and, and in the past in New York. It's happening in other rich, developed countries, too, which I think would be surprising to some listeners. Yeah, I mean, I think it shows kind of what happens when you have... This retail industry that is sort of clamouring for really cheap prices and really rapid delivery and all of those things that consumers want. But it's sort of colliding in these developed rich countries like the UK with the with the kind of remnants of an industry. You know, the, the Leicester industry is not what it was. There is no Cora anymore. There's no manufacturer with 6,000 employees that has a big trade union and, and all of the rest of it. And so the demand is flowing into places that are kind of they're fragmented and they're small and there are no unions in there anymore. And so all of those things mean that the power imbalance is really, really stark. And that's often when you end up with bad things happening, when the power imbalance is really bad. And then you kind of add into that, that even though these are rich countries that have high minimum wages, if the state actually isn't terribly good at enforcing those laws, then these are the sorts of things that happen. Yeah, it's an exploitative practice that most would think only happens in less developed, less regulated parts of the world. Thanks, Sarah. Sarah O'Connor has written a feature on Britain's dark factories for the FT. We've linked to it in the episode summary. It's also on FT.com. And we're working on an episode about the cannabis industry. If you've got any questions that you think we should be asking during the reporting of the story... You can email us at behindthemoneyatft.com. I'm also on Twitter at Amy P. Keen. We'll be back next week. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 
The latest episode of the Next 5 podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of the Next 5 wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.